So why don't you go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2 this evening. The Revelation. It is a singular revelation. It's not, a lot of people call it the book of Revelations, plural, but it's actually uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ is the full title of this book. And uh, in the revelation, uh, it is broken up into a couple um, very orderly segments. And chapter one of the book of Revelation is uh, the apostle John on the island of Patmos and receiving uh, the vision on the Lord's day of the risen, resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. And uh, from there, the Lord gives him in verse 19 uh, the keys on how to, for us, the readers of this book, how to interpret and how to uh, assimilate all this information to us. He says, write the things which you have seen. That's the vision of the Lord Jesus himself. The things which are, that's the seven churches that the Lord is going to be addressing. And the things which will take place after this. And that word is metatauta in the Greek. And... Uh, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, the Lord Jesus dictates to the Apostle John uh, basically some accommodations and also some rebukes, uh, some corrections for uh, seven churches that literally existed in the day of the Apostle John, and, uh, but they have greater meaning and, and uh, the corrections that the Lord is giving and the exhortations that the Lord gives uh, carries all the way to present day. Uh, chapter 4 and 5 is... Um, where chapter 4 actually begins with after these things, it's that same word, metatauta. Uh, that's after these things, after what? After the churches. The Lord has uh, completed uh, dealing with the church uh, here on earth. Uh, chapter 4 and 5, you see the church up in heaven with the Lord. And then in chapter 6, uh, you have the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And that is a prophecy that is dealing with the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. And it is the last seven years of uh, earth history governed by men. And that uh, continues all the way through chapter 19 of the book, uh, at which time the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Uh, Satan is uh, kind of handed his bag, uh, tied up in a chain and thrown into the abuso. And uh, from that point, uh, the millennium age begins. This is a thousand year reign where Jesus literally physically rules on earth uh, from his seat, from David's throne, uh, from the city of Jerusalem. And then at the end of the thousand years, uh, Satan will be released. Uh, a bunch of people rebel against the Lord, knowing that it is God. They rebel against him, and God wipes them all out. And then all heaven, all earth is completely annihilated. Uh, the elements melt with a fervent heat, as Peter describes for us. And then all of the dead, all of the dead, all of those who uh, were not in Christ, those were, who were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, will stand before the great white throne judgment of the Father, and uh, there they will stand trial according to their works. And none of their works will be sufficient to make it into heaven. And they will all be thrown into the lake that burns with fire where the worm does not die. The flame does not extinguish ever. And they are there forever. At that point, God recreates the heavens and the earth. And we all live happily ever after. It's pretty easy, huh? Pretty basic. Pretty basic. Well, uh, we're going to be getting into probably, arguably, the most important uh, section uh, of this book uh, because it is the section of the book that deals with us right now before the rapture, before we are glorified. So it's, it's what we can do now. It's things that are applicable to who we are this evening. And as we come into this church, into the, uh, the church of Ephesus, I want to take a moment and just kind of share. I, I kind of shared a little bit. On Sunday morning, uh, something that's been, it's just been like a word that's been coming from the Lord uh, for this church. And 
it began at the pastor's conference uh, with me specifically. And the Lord uh, gave an absolute word uh, to me as the pastor of Orange County Christian Fellowship. And it was a message of repentance, uh, number one, from sin. But then also there was another theme within that pastor's conference that the Lord really uh, struck my heart with, and that was a returning to the Lord. And, you know, I kind of drank that all in, and it it was actually in an afterglow setting where a man was speaking in tongues over here. There came an interpretation immediately, and the word that came from it was absolutely to me. And the Lord even used a scripture that he had given me when I first got saved and that he really uh, used to minister in my life. And so it was absolutely something for me. It came into uh, a setting here as um, we have a discipleship Bible study uh, for the guys who are uh, really kind of being poured into as pastors uh, for this church, leadership of this church. And uh, as we're in here, we had a time of prayer, another like afterglow type setting. And we were just in a time of prayer. And that word of repentance came out again. So now it wasn't just to me, the pastor, but it was in the setting of the leadership of this church. And there was, uh, from prayer, this word of repentance that came out. And then uh, Jared came up and actually shared. And so he opens up the word. And where we were in Second Timothy, within the text, was also a word to repent. And it's like, oh, my goodness. It's like, are, is anybody else catching this? I mean, this is like, seriously, big time here. And then I come into uh, the Sunday morning service. And it was about the, the defiling. You guys remember the with uh, Lot's daughters and the whole bit? And in there, like, the Lord had really given me uh, just, like, a word of, like, but, you know, that defilement comes in. Uh, it, it fills the void of a receding love. When, when our love begins to recede from the Lord, then the compromise and defilement will fill that space. And so, in a sense, it was a, it was a study talking about, like, returning back to the Lord, making sure that, you know, we're not defiled, that we don't give that space uh, for the enemy to come in. And then last Sunday was absolutely with Abimelech in Genesis. Uh, it was a story of where he had taken Sarah and he had done a sin. He didn't know it was a sin, but he had done a sin. And the Lord accounted him. He said, the Lord judged him for that sin and said, now repent. Repent from an actual sin. And so now the word came out to the general congregation of this church. It's a repentance from sin. And I was like, wow. You know, that is absolutely, absolutely crazy. So from the pastor's conference to Second uh, Timothy in prayer, and then before the congregation. And then tonight, when you look at uh, the church of Ephesus, there is, it actually says it literally the word twice in verse 5, uh, to repent. And yet this repentance is a different repentance. It's not the repentance from sins, but it's, a, it's we, we kind of have oftentimes the wrong idea of what repentance means. Repentance simply means to change your mind or to turn. It's like a 180 degree turn. Uh, oftentimes we'll think, you know, you, we think of the, the fire and brimstone preacher saying, repent you sinners! Like, that, like that's the idea that we get of repent. But there is also a repentance that is a, it's an invitation. Turn back to the Lord. Turn back to God. And so I'm actually, it's, it's really pretty amazing. It's been a very heavy study from Genesis to Revelation to 2 Timothy to two afterglow settings. There has been this word of repentance from the pastor to the leadership to the congregation, not just from sin, but to the Lord. And we are going to be continuing that theme, uh, and it's just within the body of the text as we begin uh, the Church of Ephesus. Let me go ahead and read it to you, and then I'll give you a little history on uh, Ephesus and where it was, and then we'll, we'll dive right into exegeting the text. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. 
To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would just open our eyes now to your word. Lord, we pray that you would just make these verses come alive in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, that you would just bless us as we read your word and as we hear your word, Lord, and as we keep your word. Where we come in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The city of Ephesus, that this church that Jesus is, is dictating uh, this epistle to, uh, it was found in the city of Ephesus. Uh, it is, at that time, was the greatest city in the Roman Empire. It was a center of uh, commerce and trade. It was also, uh, like, it was the center of arts and also magic, uh, witchcraft and sorcery. Uh, it, was the, uh, it was the protectorate city of the Temple of Diana. Uh, she was the patriarch of that city, and that's a daughter of Zeus, If you, those of you who are unfamiliar with Greek mythology and, and all that. But uh, at the Temple of Diana, the Temple of Diana was known as it's potentially the very first bank ever in existence uh, in the world. It was a place where they kept uh, convicts, crazy people, uh, lunatics, things like that. It was also a place where the, the priests and priestesses uh, basically, they were temple prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, and the worship of Diana was through sexual rites. Uh, so it was a fairly dark city. Uh, like I said, it had a huge deep water port that allowed it to be the center of commerce and trade uh, for that area and in the Roman Empire. And it was at that place in that day that um, Paul came wandering through and he found a couple disciples in Acts chapter 19. We'll get to that in just a second. But the eventual history of the, of the city of Ephesus is that the, there was a river that came right down into that harbor. And that, that river continued to just uh, put in silt. You know, silt just kept flowing into that harbor, flowing into that harbor, until it eventually started making it more and more shallow so boats weren't able to come in anymore. They actually drudged it once, and uh, they got it opened back up again. But this thing, it just kept happening. It just, it, the silt just kept coming, kept getting laid down, kept getting laid down. And finally, because of all the havoc and all the troubles with this, they actually moved their trade to another city, which then became the new great uh, city of the Roman Empire. And Ephesus began to slowly dwindle and die. And till it, it just, it's kind of like, you know, Detroit was like, they called it, you know, the, the, the steel belt, the iron belt, you know, of the nation. And now it's called the rust belt because all of the industry has moved away from Detroit. In the same sense, at the city of Ephesus, it was the same thing. It was a city that was booming and thriving and just vital in, the, in just the life of the Roman Empire. And then it began to die and fade and fade and fade. 
If you go there today, where the original city was is now 20 miles inland. It's no longer on the coast. And the area that it is, is a, it's a marsh. That's all that's left of it. You go, huh. Well, why are you telling us that? Well, we'll get to that. You'll see it as, we, as the course of the study goes. It's important to see the background. So Paul came in Acts chapter 19. He came to the city, and as he walked through the city, he found some disciples. And as he enters into the city and he sees the disciples, there's 12 of them, kind of funny. But these 12 disciples, he says, have you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? It's kind of an interesting question for somebody to ask another believer. It's like, I don't know if you guys ever do that, but you walk up to a Christian, you find out they're Christian. It's like, hey, yo, when you got saved, were you baptized with the Holy Spirit? And most people probably look at you kind of funny, like, what? But nonetheless, that's what Paul does. Paul walks up to him and he says, hey, when you were baptized, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And these guys said, no, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. What's that? And, he go, and Paul thinks this is very strange. And he says, well, what were you baptized in then? And they said, we were baptized by John's baptism. Well, we're talking about John the Baptist now. Uh, this is the baptism of repentance from sins. Yes? And he says, okay. So he goes, you need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he baptizes them in the name of Jesus Christ. He lays hands on them and he prays for them. And they all receive the Holy Spirit. They start speaking in tongues and they start to prophesy. He takes these 12 disciples now who have now been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes in and he begins teaching in the, synagogue, in the synagogues. He brings these guys with him and he starts teaching in all the synagogues. A few of the people say, yes, we, we like your message. Jesus is the Messiah. That's great. Most of them harden their hearts against him and they stir up trouble and they send him out. So he goes over to a school of a guy named, I think, Tyrannus. And for two years, Paul uh, sets up shop in the school of Tyrannus. And these people turn the entire area of Asia upside down. And, you know, there is a huge commerce in making silver idols for Diana. Uh, if you go online, you can see them. I don't recommend it, but uh, they're like multi-breasted figures. You know, they're, they're all, they're pornographic is what they are. And so, you know, there is a huge commerce in this, uh, in these pornographic images that people worship. And such was the, the, um, the workings and the preaching of Paul, these 12 disciples and those who uh, became proselytes later, that... Literally, the temple worship was fading, 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 and the whole business was in danger of collapsing, so much so that Demetrius, uh, the guy who was kind of in charge of the crap, got all the other guys together and said, hey, you know, this Paul is like ruining our business. You know, and so you know, pretty soon you know, the temple of Diana is going to be forsaken. Huge riot happens. Everybody goes crazy. It all chills out, though, and it's fine. Okay, with 12 disciples filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul literally turns and rocks the foundations of Ephesus. From there, now we come 30 years into the future. Now we're into the second generation of this church. Not the people that Paul, you know, you know preached the gospel to, laid hands and Holy Spirit filled and all that. But now we come 30 years later to their children, to the people that they brought to the Lord, to the people that have, you know, now come in there. And that's whom Jesus is addressing. <coughs> Jesus is addressing the second generation of this church now. And let's just dig right in. He says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. Last week we discussed these lampstands. You know, the lampstands represent the church, 
And that means the lamps are the people of the church. Lamps are filled with oil. That is the Holy Spirit. The light that a lamp shines, Jesus says, behold, I am the light of the world. And then later he said, you are the light of the world. What's the light of the world? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is the light that, that we are to shine. Jesus walking in the midst of it is acting as the high priest. He is the one who is responsible for filling and making sure that the light doesn't fade. And not only that, but he also, it says that he's holding the seven stars in his right hand. The, the seven stars, uh, sometimes it's used, angelos in the Greek is used to represent uh, angels, actual angels. In the context here, it's more probable that it's actually the pastors of the church. And he's saying because the way that he's holding on to them, it's, a, it's, it's an authoritative grasp is how he's holding these things, these seven stars. And so what it's saying is, in one sense, the pastors of these churches, the, the messengers of these churches are divinely protected. You know, Jesus said, those who are in my hands, no one can take from me. And if, even if so, you know, they're in the Father's hand. Nobody can, take them, can snatch them from my Father's hand. Basically saying there's a divine protection there. But then also, there's a divine authority. That these leaders have a responsibility, and they are under the authority of Jesus Christ, the high priest of the church, the head of the church. And so, here we have Jesus Speaking, and, and this is how he's presenting himself to this church. And in each of the churches, he's going to present himself a little bit differently. But to this church, he's addressing them. I am he who walks in the midst of the lampstands, the high priest, the one who is responsible for making sure that the light of the gospel is shining brightly and purely and without wavering. The one who is responsible for filling the lamps with oil, for trimming the wicks to make sure that they're all right. He, that's how he's addressing this church. And he says, now listen. I know your works. And he's going to go through a list of works. Uh, their works, their labors, their patience, uh, not being able to bear evil, uh, that, they're, that they test things, that they persevere, that they uh, labor again. Uh, as we get into that, these works have a very important meaning because he basically gives them seven commendations here. There are seven things that he's addressing saying, yes, guys, this is great. And as he's doing that, as you know, we're in the book of Revelation, seven is the number of completion. And so he's basically saying, your works, the completeness of your works before me are good. He says, what this church is doing is great. It's fantastic. It's all good. The fullness of what they were supposed to be doing, they were doing. Now, when he comes into it, the, he begins with, he says... I know your works. Well, what, what does that word works means? It basically means it's literally like you guys go to a job. You go to work. It's something that it's performance oriented. It's you have a task and you do it. He says, I know your works. He says, I know your labor. That word labor, it, it's a little bit different. It's not the same thing as the work. The word labor literally means to cut yourself or to beat your breast or to uh, be in lamentation. He says, so I know the work that you've done. He says, I know how you have strived. I know how you've beat your breast, how you've lamented, how you've mourned and grieved in this work. He says, I know your patience. He says, I know your endurance, your bearing up. He says, I know that you have uh, continued in this. He says, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. Right? That, that word uh, bear is, uh, they wouldn't support those who are evil. Not only that, but he says, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. That word tested is like to literally put on trial. 
Right, so they literally, for the people who uh, came and said, "Oh, you know, we're apostles of the Lord. Look at us. You know, here, throw a love feast for us," and that kind of stuff, which happened often in their days. Uh, he said, "You have tested them. You have put them on trial to find out whether they are good or evil, and you have found them liars." It's like, wow. Okay, that's great. He says, "You have uh, persevered. Right, you have persevered. That means to take up and to hold on to." He says, "And uh, you have patience." That patience is the same word that was uh, put before, and uh, only it's in a different context now where it says, you have kept on being patient. So they continued in their patience. He says, and not only that, you have labored for my namesake. That word labor is not exactly the same as the one before where it said that, you know, beating your breast and lamenting. Uh, This labor uh, means to work until you're worn out, until you're on literally, it can actually mean to faint. He says, so you have labored for my namesake, but you haven't fainted. You haven't grown weary. He says, you have worked, you basically worked yourself till you, you worked your fingers to the bone. You've worked to that point of utter exhaustion, and yet you have not fainted. You haven't grown weary. You've continued. You think, wow, that's a pretty cool church. You think about this church and who they were and what they were doing. They had everything going on. Right? They, they, were literally, they were a church that they, they knew their works. They knew the things that God had called them to do. They knew the things that they were supposed to labor in. They, they, they mourned over the loss. They, you know, they lamented over you know, the people who were persecuting them, and yet they continued on. They endured. They wouldn't support evil. You know, and that means that they were actually judging sin. You know, they, they recognized evil when they saw it, and they would not support it, yet they would shun it instead. They put on trial the people who came and said, hey, you know, I know something. And they said, really? Show us. Prove it. Why do you say that? How did you come to that conclusion? You know, why do you think that? We have a lot of people today. There's a lot of teachers today. You can read books on all sorts of stuff. And people have all sorts of whack views of you know, Jesus Christ, the church, uh, the, the nature of salvation, who's to be saved, who's not to be saved, things like that, the character of God. And this church would stand up and say, we're, we're going to put these people on trial. Too many times, you know, people will read a book and just say, hey, you know, this guy's a really great author. He's got like a really cool style. And so what he's saying must be true. No. These people actually balanced it against scripture and said, is what they're saying true? They put it on trial to find out whether it was good or evil. And they could not bear those who were evil. And they, you know, the people who uh, came as false apostles, they found out that they were indeed liars. And they would cast them out. They, they kept being patient, you know, because patience is a hard thing, huh? Patience is a really, really hard thing. And yet, the one thing that they needed more of is patience. You know, and, and they had to continue in that patience, and the patience was there initially, and yet as all these things and all of the works and all of the effort that was going on in this church, they were still patient, and they continued in their patience. And they worked until, until the verge of passing out, and yet they didn't. They continued on. There are seven commendations here, a completeness of their works, and Jesus, sh- he saw them, and they were good. They were good. And I think, wow, that's a great church. We, you'd be blessed to be a part of a church like that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yet he says in verses 4 and 5, and this is where we kind of get to the heart of the matter. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
In the Greek, the word order is a little different. It actually says, uh, I have this against you. Your first love, you have less. Putting the emphasis on the love. He says, your first love, you have left. And you think, wow. Well, that's not that big of a thing, is it? It's not that big of a thing. But this is what I want to just kind of bring you back a little bit. Remember that the church initially was built out of 12 disciples from the, from the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 19. And they had a baptism of repentance. They had repented from their sins. And they were, they were trying to follow the Lord in that repentance. And yet then the fullness of the gospel came to them and they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ coming and his baptism, baptism was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How did, the, how did the baptism of the Holy Spirit affect their lives? It wasn't just speaking in tongues. Okay, that, that's not the fullness of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's not just prophesying. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, understanding, self-control. You know, th there's a list. But in the end, it's the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This church was built on the foundation of love. They love the Lord, the great Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. Jesus adds uh, in the Gospels, and your mind. Right, The fullness of who we are, we are called to love the Lord with. That is where they were. That's how they began. That was how the Spirit began to work and move within them. Paul, in the book to the Ephesians, as he was writing to them, he talked about their faith and their labor of love and their love for one another. And it was in there, and it's like that, that was a hallmark. And through them, it said that all of Asia had heard the gospel and known about the Lord Jesus Christ through them and through their witness, through their testimony, through their love. Right? That's where they were. And all of these works that we, that we have looked at in verses 2 and 3... All of those works were an overflow of their love for God and their love for each other. And yet now, Jesus says, but I have this one thing against you. He says, you've left that first love. That word for love is agape. He says, you have left your first love. Your first love, you have left. That thing, that foundation where you started it's, not, it's no coincidence the way Jesus addresses himself as the high priest, the one who is in the midst of the lampstands, the high priest who is supposed to keep the lamps full of oil. He says, you have left your first love. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit when you began with those 12 disciples. You were filled. Your lamps were full and your light shone brightly. He says, and now you have left that first love. You have walked away from that love and you're like those foolish virgins and your light is fading. Your light is beginning to fade and the gospel is flickering in your life. The repentance that the Lord Jesus is speaking to the, to the church that is in Ephesus is not a repentance from sin. There, there is nothing in here speaking of uh, sin that they're guilty of. It's not a repentance from sin, but it's a repentance back unto the Lord. Do you understand the difference? 
Repentance is the turning, 180. And yet, worship, you know, we're all familiar with the word shakah, to bow down and worship, but there's also another Greek word that means to turn and kiss. And the act of repentance, the turning away from sin, is completed with the act of turning towards God and having relationship with him. Being filled with his Holy Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit might be love. In 1 Corinthians, it's a famous one, the 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's just look at it real quick. Keep your finger in Revelation, but just let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is speaking of agape, the, the agape love. And this is what he says. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not agape, love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. We look at the church of Ephesus. They had all of the works. They had everything. They were a solid church. And yet something began to happen in them where it's like they, they began, the works themselves began to take priority in their lives. Uh, I don't know. Has anybody here ever gone to Bible college or anything like that? Led a Bible study? Things like that? What can happen is your devotions begin very slowly to be replaced with the study for that Bible study. Your devotions begin to uh, be replaced by the studying for Bible college classes and things like that. And it's very easy to do. You know, it, it's actually a very, it's a very real temptation that my study for uh, Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings can begin to take place and shove out of the way my time of personal devotion. These things can't be. They can't be. It's so easy when we're doing all these works, you know, and walking out and praying with people, which is an incredible thing, and, and that's all great, but it can't be all of it. You know, I met this guy, um, Pastor John, and he was sitting out on a rock waiting for somebody, and I walked past him. I'm like, hey, how's it going? You know, I try to be friendly and all, you know, fellow laborer in the Lord. It's like, hey, how's it going, brother? And he was just looking at me, and... He goes, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I went over there and just introduced myself. And he says, and he just looked at me. And he goes, you know, I've been ministering for 20 years. He goes, and when I started that work, he goes, I asked the Lord, Lord, let me see people get saved. Let me get, see people get saved. I just want to see people get saved, Lord. And he goes, you know, Brian, he goes, in the 20 years of ministry, he goes, I've seen a lot of people get saved. He goes, the work has blessed our ministry, and, you know, it's just, it's been incredible. The Lord has definitely, he's, he's kept that word for me. He goes, but you know what, who cares? And I was like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> like what? And he goes, and this is what he said. He goes, the work became the work. He goes, and my entire, these 20 years, he goes, I've just been working to see people saved. He goes, but, he goes, I should have been working. I should have been drawing near to the Lord. He said, I should have been asking to see his glory. I should have been asking to be in his presence, to hear his voice. He goes, and he, said, he like pointed his finger at me. And he said, he goes, seek the Lord today. Seek his presence today. 
And you know, what I could see from this man is a man who had been faithful in the Lord. He had all the works and like, you know, he had just been just pouring out and he'd been sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel and people were getting saved and people were getting saved and his church had hundreds of people in it and most of which by evangelism had been saved. And yet he himself had this emptiness inside and he himself was just like, I should have been seeking the Lord. I should have been seeking my God because he felt empty. And, you know, throughout the conference, I, I talked to him several times through the conference and I kept saying, how you doing, brother? And he'd always just kind of go, I'm okay. Whatever it was, he hadn't hooked back in. He hadn't plugged back in. He hadn't grafted himself back into the vine. He hadn't found that place where he was just there in the presence of the Lord. He was still stuck in that place where it's just like, I should have been, I should have been, I should have been, rather than now I'm going to. Now I'm going to. The Lord said, you have turned from your first love. Now, this is an invitation to love. That is what the Lord, that's what this repentance is about. And I absolutely believe on this day, and none of you can convince me otherwise, that there has been an absolute word from the Lord to this church. And it began with me. It starts with the pastor. It came to the, the leadership within the church. And then it's come into the congregation of the church. And all of these things have been like, it's not that I've manufactured it. You know, we just happened to be, we did First Timothy first. And now we're in Second Timothy, you know, for the discipleship. You know, we've been going through the book of Genesis. We're just going to keep on going right through. We've started the book of Revelation. And we didn't start it until we were able to. And so it's just all been going. And yet, all at the same time, the culmination of everything that the Lord has been doing the Lord has been saying, it's time to turn away from the sin and it's time to turn to me. There is a command and a correction for us to turn away from sin. I, I, you know, I shared on Sunday how it's just like the Lord, I absolutely knew it. He said, you know, engrave on the golden tablets, holiness to the Lord. And, you know, that for me was an automatic, I knew exactly what I was supposed to be doing. I'd been making some compromises in the TV shows that I was watching, movies that I was allowing myself to watch. And I was just like, you know what? The moment that, that it went out, I was just like, TV's done. I'm not watching it anymore. I'm done. It's gone. You know, it's over. I'm not going to watch it anymore. I've got better things to do. Yeah, the Lord's coming. There's not enough time. I've been entertained plenty in my life. I don't need any more entertainment. I'm good. I'm great. Yo, there was an, an immediate thing starting with me. Starting with me, he said, it's time to turn away from those things. No more compromise. It's time to go forward. And then to the leadership, it was a repentance before revival. It was a, it was a repentance before the outpouring of the Spirit. Kind of like, you know, Paul said to, the first, to these Ephesian church, right? He said, what were you baptized in? Repentance. Repentance came first. And then he said, okay, now let's baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist came. He was the predecessor. He was the one making the path straight for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he said, you know, he was the one crawling in the wilderness, Make way the paths for the Lord, right? Make straight the paths for the Lord. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the cry of, of John the Baptist. And then Jesus came and Jesus, he was baptized by John. And then he continued. And you know what the first words of his ministry were? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus carried on the same thing. And yet John the Baptist, his testimony of Jesus was, yo, I baptize with water, but there is one who is coming after me who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And you go like, well, what's that? Well, we know what the Holy Spirit is. Fire is judgment. 
He will baptize with the Holy Spirit to those who repent. And for those who don't, it's his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he's blowing the chaff into the flames. And so we are called as a church. That was Sunday morning. Sunday morning, the, the, the word to the church. And I wasn't making it up. It was there in the text. Repent. Repent from our works. Repent from the sin. Repent from the things that are distracting us from the Lord. Repent from the things that are keeping us from the kingdom. That, are, that you know, the, the, the enemy has you know, soothed us to sleep with. It's time to, to turn away from those things. Repent from those. A word of repentance came out. And now, for you fine people who are here on this Wednesday evening, now the second word comes. And this is the blessing one. Now the Lord says, repent, come back to me. Come back to the fullness of the relationship that you once had with me. And guys, you know what? As I've been meditating on the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That means 100%, nothing left. That means sanctified, set apart with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all of your mind. And I kept asking myself this question, and I asked it here, and I asked it at Worship Generation, what would my life look like today if I loved the Lord that way? Would it look like it looks now? And the answer is still no to my shame. But you know what? It looks different than it did a week ago. It really does. It really does. And you know what? I'm excited. There, there's been a passion that's been building since I've been... It's like, you know what? Forget the TV. It's done. And then, you know what? Playing my guitar and just worshiping God, not rehearsing for Sunday or Wednesday, but just to be with the Lord. Reading my Bible, not for a Bible study, not for my morning or my evening devotion, but just because it's like, I want to know the Lord more. And, you know, going out and like ministering to people and things like that, not because I have to, because like, I started kind of like getting a little bit proud, like, wow, every time I go out, it's really cool, it's awesome, right? And I get to tell stories to people. It's like, this is cool, like, this is what happened last time, you know? But then it's like, the Lord kind of challenged me. It's like, are you doing it because of that, or are you doing it because you love them? And here's the challenge that he gave me. You'll know what your motivation for doing it is, is if you only brag and don't pray for them. I have their names written down, and it's like, the Lord challenged me. How much have you actually prayed for them other than the time when you originally talked to them and prayed for them? Have you prayed for them since? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, Lord, my motives were wrong. My motives were wrong. I was so excited about going out and sharing with these people and being able to come back and say, hey, guys, it's really cool. You should try it, kind of a stuff. But then the Lord's like, are you really loving them? And the answer was, not really. Not really. And so there has been a word to this church, to Orange County Christian Fellowship. Guys, we can no longer play for the tie. We can no longer just continue as is. And, you know, uh, Heidi and I are reading uh, a, a biography on John Newton. You guys know who John Newton is? He's the writer of Amazing Grace. He's the guy who wrote that hymn, you know, like the most well-known Christian hymn ever. And 
what was really interesting about it, and we just read these chapters, and it's just go figure about where we happen to be at things. You know, the last book we read was Chasing the Dragon about the, the drug slums in Hong Kong, and now we're back to the 17th century and reading John Newton. And as we're reading through the, the chapters and we come to John Newton, you know what it's talking about the last couple of chapters Heidi and I read? How John Newton gave his heart to the Lord. He, he, he repented, and he knew, yes, God is God. He is my God, and I'm going to serve him. He started going to church and all that kind of stuff, but you know what he did? You know what his, his job was? His job was a slave trader. And he, in that, he was the first mate on a slave ship, and he beat them, and he put them in there, he raped the women, and he did all that kind of stuff. And do you know what his excuse was in his mind? In the culture, everybody says it was fine. They're, they're not really human. They're, they're, just, they're just slaves. There's nothing. It's completely fine for me to be you know, professing my love to my fiancé back home and raping these uh, African women and then beating them and killing some and the sick ones throwing them overboard into the sea. And because his culture told him it was okay. It's, he, he had absolutely no problem doing any of that. Like the, the, there, there was no conviction whatsoever because the church was completely fine with it. And, you know, it, it was fine. It was the social norm. And so it was completely fine. And yet, I know where we're coming because Amazing Grace is about how, you know, saved a wretch like him. And when he says wretch, he means it. He was a wretched man. He was a horrible man. And yet, you know what? What would the Lord say of our culture, of our social norms? It's horrible. It's wretched. And the Lord says, we have to repent from it. We can no longer look at Scripture through the eyes of political correctness. We have to repent from that. And what is okay by the world cannot be okay in the church anymore. And then from there, and that has to happen first because you can't really go forward in the Holy Spirit when you're quenching the Spirit with your life. You can't really go forward in the Spirit. You can't be filled with the Spirit when your very life is quenching and pushing out the Holy Spirit. And he says, so first you, the, the call to repentance from those sins, from those things, from that culture, be set apart, be sanctified, be washed in the water of the Word. And then he says, repent. Turn to me. Turn to your first love. Do you guys remember? How many of you got saved as adults? A few of us? The rest of you saved as kids? Always knew the Lord? Okay. For those of you who are saved as adults, you probably know it more clearly and more dramatically in your mind. But I remember when I got saved. Like, I, I remember the day, I remember crying on the floor, like just crying out to him as a vile non-believer, knowing that I was a wicked man who deserved hell, and just crying before, like sobbing before the Lord. And then I, I remember the feeling of how it's like I felt clean for the first time in my life. I felt clean, and I felt light. And then as I began, like I said, I got saved in Leviticus. And so, and I was going from cover to cover. So, you know, I spent about a year of my life in the Old Testament and the only thing I knew of God and the church and religion was what I read in those pages. And so I began acting as a practicing Jew. Now, not the Jews of today, not rabbinical Judaism, but the traditional, actual Ten Commandments kind of stuff, Judaism, right? That's what I was. And Heidi was like, oh, Lord, please help him to get to the New Testament. Please <laughs> speed his reading up, please, Lord. Yo, but it's like, but I was living my life that way. 
And you know, there were people who were literally offended at me. Not because I said, oh, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. But they would ask, well, why aren't you doing that? Oh, because you know, I read the Bible and it said that we shouldn't be doing that. Oh, you know, you're just being, you know, you're, you're being self-righteous. Oh, you're being this or you're being that. And it's just like, what? Like, what? You know, and they're telling me I was being, I was literally told that I was being a legalist. That's like, obedience to God is being legalistic? I said, I don't think so. Yeah, I may be wrong. I'm really new to this, but I don't think so. But you know what? I had a zeal. I had this excitement. And, you know, like I told you, you know, Heidi and I had a vast library of DVDs. You know, we had a whole bunch of them. And it's like, you know, we were watching them one day, kind of like John Newton, what he'll come to it probably in a few chapters here. But it's like, you know, we're like watching those movies. And also one, one night we're watching this movie, took the Lord's name in vain a couple times, profanity here and there and stuff like that. Heidi was over here on my right. I looked at her. She looked at me at the same time. And we said, why are we watching this? And it's like, I have no idea. Got that thing out, broke it. It's like, you want to sell it in a garage sale? No, I don't want to file anybody else's mind. And broke it, right? And so then I started going through all of these things. It's like, yeah, and, and we, we literally like sat down and we started opening. It's like, and we started like saying some of the lines of these, oh yeah, there's another one. Oh, oh, and that one does that too. Oh, remember that spot in that one? And we just started breaking them. And we went through all the ones that we knew were absolutely like had something like that in it, got through them all the way. And then as we kept going, we, we would watch some more movies and things like that. And then all of a sudden, it was like, they'd take the Lord's name and be oh, there's no one. Oh, unclean, unclean. We'd be like ringing the bell and some of that. We'd run over, yank it out of the DVD. You know, we'd spray it down with Lysol because it's now been infected with, you know, the filth of this movie. And we'd break it and throw it away and the whole bit. Like, we were zealous. It's like, we were on fire. It's like, you know, I don't want to defile my mind with anything. And it's like, I was listening to K-Wave like 24 hours a day. It was like playing in the radio when we were going to sleep kind of stuff. When we woke up, you know, on my way to work, on the way back. You know, I was listening, I was reading my Bible at every moment, every 15-minute break that I had at work. My lunch break, I was sitting there eating while I was reading it. And the people at work were like, what is wrong with you? I remember Mark Rosati, um, a sales rep over there. Mark, if you're listening, hey, how's it going, bro? But, you know, he was just like... Yo, you look miserable, but it was because I was like this. I was really intent to what I was, what I was reading. And he's just like, like, what's wrong with you, man? Like he really was, but it's like, I was hungry and I was just like consuming the word and like just everything, everything was exciting in the Lord and he was speaking to us and he was using us. And there was just like this incredible work that was going on. And those of you who came to the Lord, I know, I knew when Stacy came to the Lord, you know, I, you know, for the rest of you, I'm not, you know, I don't know, you know, all of your stories, but do you remember that? Or even for people who, you know, grew up in the church and knew the Lord your whole lives. Do you remember that day when you chose, when, when it wasn't just your parents making you come to church, but there was that day when you said, no, he's my God. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day? Are you do you love the Lord with that same passion today? Is your heart that given to him? Is your soul that given to him? Is your mind, your thoughts that given to him? Is the things that you do with your body that given to him? For most of us, it's probably not. And so this word to the church of Ephesus is exactly right for us. The word to, that the Lord gave to Abimelech on Sunday is the beginning and remember, it's the same word that Paul brought to uh, the Ephesians. So you've repented from your sins. Okay, now it's time to be baptized by Jesus Christ. 
Now it's time to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To turn towards God because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. How can we keep the great Shema in our own strength? Can we? How can we love Him with everything we are unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit? We can't. We need God's Spirit to be filling us. And our high priest Jesus identifies himself in this epistle as the high priest between the lampstands. He says, hey, yo, I'm there. He says, but you've left me. He says, you've left the first love. You've replaced your time with me. Think, remember um, Mary and Martha, the two sisters? Their brother is Lazarus, the one who Jesus raised from the dead after four days. But Lord, he stinketh that guy. And remember, Martha was busy, 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 busy doing all these things. And she was all frustrated and all anxious and everything. And she complains to the Lord and says, you know, Lord, yo, I'm doing all this stuff, all this work. And Mary is sitting there doing nothing. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, he goes, you're troubled about a great many of things. He says, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that part and it will not be taken from her. To sit at the feet of of Jesus to hear his words and allow them to wash over you. Guys, that's what we're called to. That's what the word of the Lord for this church this evening is. And you know, it, this can be a Bible study for you or it can be a word of the Lord. To me, this is a word of the Lord. I know it is. Just the, the way the Lord has brought all of these verses together, all of these scriptures together through prayer, through afterglows and things like that, the way all of this has all come together and the timing of all of this. Guys, I believe that the Lord is going to do an incredible work in this church. I believe he's going to do an incredible work in this city. I really do. I really do. And I'm really excited about it. And now, now is the time to prepare ourselves. Now is the time to be ready that when the harvest comes in, we are ready, that we can be used by the master's hand, that we are sanctified and set apart for his purposes, that we can be part of it. You guys want to be a part of that? Dude, I do. I really do. That's why we planted this church. I mean, the Lord said go, but like other than that, it was, yeah, that was the obedience part, but still it's like, you know, I have an excitement and a vision that you know we're going to be reached but you know what it can't happen unless unless we turn away from the things that we're comfortable with on sunday morning i asked you know do you all know the things that that you need to be repenting of and everybody shook their head yes there wasn't one person like because from here i can see everybody's face and i said we all know don't we we all know the thing this morning that was on sunday that we have to repent of don't we and every single head shook yes Guys, we know. And so we must turn away from those things, those compromises we must turn away from. And then, and then we, meet, we need to turn to the Lord and to say, Lord, I love you. Help me to love you more. Show me what it means to love you with my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Show me what that means. Show me what it feels like, the height, width, depth, length of it. Show me what your love is. Show me what my life should look like in that love. Because I don't want to be a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I don't want my sacrifices, my labor of, uh, for the Lord to be before the Lord of nothing. I don't want the things that I sacrifice to be of no profit and no value before the Lord. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13. That's not my heart. I, 
the things that we do, if, if God isn't glorified, if the Spirit isn't a part of it, then there's no point in doing it, is it? And if we are unwilling, if we just want to come to church, and just like, if the sum total of church is just to come to a Bible study, and that's it, then, meh, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll do your best, I hope you enjoy it. But it's like, if, if being part of the church is really being the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus Christ, then there is so much more than just being a Bible study. And we can't really attain that unless we are willing to love passionately, unless we are willing to sacrifice all for that love, for the love that sacrificed all for us. And, guys, he says repent. He says repent or else. He says do your first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Guys, where is Ephesus today? Where is the church of Ephesus? It's gone. It might not have happened in that generation that this letter went to. It might have happened a couple generations later. But in the end, they started a booming metropolis, a thriving work, and just on fire with the Holy Spirit, going, the light of the gospel reaching all of Asia. And then it faded, faded, because they left their first love, and it faded, and their, their lamp started flickering, right? The candle stand, it started flickering, and the light wasn't as steady, and it faded, and it faded, and then the people of the city started moving away, moving away, moving away, until there, it just became a hick town, and then it was gone. And now it's a marsh. And there's nothing left. It's gone. And guys, with us, listen to me on this. Because when we leave our first love, when we leave that love of Jesus Christ, that first love, that passionate love with our heart and soul, mind and strength, when we leave that, do you immediately just like shift over to complete and total hedonism? No. Not, well, some people do, I suppose, but for the most part, not usually. Usually, it's a, it's a gradual decline where it's like you, know, you start in the front row. You're, you know, you're listening to Bible studies all the time. You're praying every morning. You've got your devotions going and things like that. And then you start skipping devotions. And then you don't have any devotions at all. And then you're not coming to the midweeks anymore. And now you're only coming on Sunday mornings. And then you, know, you were sitting in the front. And then you're in the middle. And then you're in the back. And then you're back closest to the door. And then you're out the door. And then you go to church every once in a while. And then you start stop going at all except for on Christmas and Easter and then well you know Easter's you know Easter they make you get up kind of early in the morning and that whole bit so ah forget that one we'll just come to Christmas that's more fun anyway and you got the little candle lights and all that kind of stuff that's fun and then then you stop going to church and it's like hey you know what uh, they're too judgmental there you know just because I'm doing this this and this and, and, and they don't like that so I don't feel comfortable there anymore and so it's like you know I still love God I just don't love his people so that's where I'm going to be and then eventually it's just like I don't even love God anymore I just kind of tolerate him and then eventually it's just like ah God forget you and that's how it happens but the first step in that is you leave your first love the first link in that chain is leaving your first love and then you just slide, slide, slide into nothing. And so he says, but, you know, hey, I, you do have this. He says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, <laughs> right? There's, I guess there's a positive note in everything. Verse 6, Nicolaitans basically is, uh, uh, Nicolaitans, uh, Nicolae just basically means conqueror and then uh, Laeton or something like that. It means uh, people, 
And so it's basically conquering people. You hate the deeds of the basically clergy that rule over um, the people. That would be like uh, rabbis of today. That would be priests, things like that, where literally they stand in between you and God. Where they can rule over you, there's shepherds' ministries where they literally say, hey, I'm your shepherd, you do what I say, you need to sell your house and you need to give the money to that people and then you have to do it. That's the kind of stuff where he's saying, eh, ixnay on that, no good, bad stuff. And so, but then now listen to this, because I love the way it finishes. Verse 7, he who has an ear, how many of us have ears? Okay, this is to all of us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, says to the churches. That's all of the churches. This letter to the Ephesians is to all of the churches, all of the other six, and to us. He says to the churches, he says to him or her who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, well, that's kind of cool. What's that mean? Okay. This takes us back to Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. What was the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden? The tree of life. The tree of life. And then Eve uh, ate of the fruit, deceived by the devil. She gives it to her husband. They're now defiled. God says, "Uh uh-oh, now if they reach out and take hold of the tree of life, they'll live forever. Bad stuff. Can't happen. So he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, and then he puts a cherubim in front of the garden and then a flaming sword. spins in every direction or faces every direction okay you think okay that's kind of weird well then you have like the great flood and all that kind of stuff and it's like nobody knows where the garden of eden is well i'm I'm gonna just lay something on you and this is just a conjecture but it's what i believe uh we see the tree of life at the end of the book of revelation in the city of god in the new jerusalem do we not it's a heavenly place a cherub was set there to guard the way to the tree of life the tree of life was originally in the garden of eden but it's not there now or is it because they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I, I honestly believe that before sin entered the world, that heaven and earth were connected. They were together. There was an access point where it's like you could just like, like they were part of the same land. They were both there, the presence of God in the presence of this world. And they were there together. That's why it's an angel and a, and a spiritual sword that guard the way. I'm sure, I'm sure that angel's still there, that cherub is still there, and that flaming sword is still there guarding the way into the tree of life. Okay, it's there. Probably from Satan, so he can't reach out and grab it and bring it to us. But it's there. And when we see at the end of this book of Revelation, what does it say? The new Jerusalem came down, and God was there. And, and it's like the glory of God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit was the light of this world now. And it's like heaven and earth are once again together. And so now don't miss this because this is really important. There's the repentance from sin, but then there's the invitation. Repent and turn back to me. Turn back to the Lord. And when we do that, when we are fully loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, when we are back to that first love, when we are just like on fire and seeking God for every single day, when we wake up in the morning and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit that I might be used by you this day, what would you have for me, Lord? And he says to those people, he says, I will give the the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, what was the thing that was lost? What was the most precious commodity that humanity has ever owned that has been lost. Perfect, 
unveiled fellowship with God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is a call this evening for us to turn back to our God. Thus is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that as we sought you, Lord, as pastors, as leadership, and as a congregation, Lord, you have answered. And your word to us was a word of turning away from this world, Lord, and the sins which so easily beset us, that entangle us, and slow us from running our race, and turning to you, the lover of our souls, Lord, the author and the finisher of our faith, who called us from before the foundations of the world. Lord, I want to love you. We want to love you more. And Lord, I pray that you would just stir in our hearts. Lord, let your words, Lord, these words from Genesis to Revelation, let them just stir our hearts, Lord. Let us look at these things and know that they are true and live accordingly. Lord, it is my desire to follow you all the days of my life, Lord, to worship you until the very end, as the song sang. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just meet us, Lord, for we do want to see your glory. We are not satisfied with just uh, what we have to this day. Even like Moses, he, he talked to you face to face, Lord, and yet he said, Lord, I want more. Let me see your glory. Lord, I want more. More of you. Knowing, Lord, as your word says that when we set our heart on you, Lord, you will give us the desires of our heart. You will give us of yourself. Lord, I want more of you. Please come and meet us this evening. For we come in Jesus' name. Amen.